This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 2, Chapter 6, Part 2 of 3 Emily then thought it proper to mention the subject of her alarm. Montoni and his companions rose instantly and went to the windows, but, these not affording them a view of the troops, they at length proceeded to the ramparts, where Cavini conjectured it to be a legion of condottieri on their march towards Modena. One part of the cavalcade now extended along the valley, and another wound among the mountains towards the north while some troops still lingered on the woody precipices, where the first had appeared, so that the great length of the procession seemed to include an whole army. While Montoni and his family watched its progress, they heard the sound of trumpets and the clash of cymbals in the vale, and then others answering from the heights. Emily listened with emotion to the shrill blast that woke the echoes of the mountains, and Montoni explained the signals which he appeared to be well acquainted, and which meant nothing hostile. The uniforms of the troops, and the kinds of arms they bore, confirmed to him the conjecture of Cavigni, and he had the satisfaction to see them pass by without even stopping to gaze upon his castle. He did not, however, leave the rampart till the bases of the mountains had shut them from his view, and the last murmur of the trumpet floated away on the wind. Cavini and Verezzi were inspirited by this spectacle, which seemed to have roused all the fire of their temper. Montoni turned into the castle in thoughtful silence. Emily's mind had not yet sufficiently recovered from its late shock to endure the loneliness of her chamber, and she remained upon the ramparts, for Madame Montoni had not invited her to her dressing-room, whither she had gone evidently in loath spirits, and Emily from her late experience, had lost all wish to explore the gloomy and mysterious recesses of the castle. The ramparts, therefore, were almost her only retreat, and here she lingered till the grey haze of evening was again spread over the scene. The cavaliers supped by themselves, and Madame Montoni remained in her apartment, whither Emily went before she retired to her own. She found her aunt weeping and in much agitation. The tenderness of Emily was naturally so soothing that it seldom failed to give comfort to the drooping heart, but Madame Montoni's was torn, and the softest accents of Emily's voice were lost upon it. With her usual delicacy she did not appear to observe her aunt's distress, but it gave an involuntary gentleness to her manners, and an air of solicitude to her countenance, which Madame Montoni was vexed to perceive, who seemed to feel the pity of her niece to be an insult to her pride, and dismissed her as soon as she properly could. Emily did not venture to mention again the reluctance she felt to her gloomy chamber, but she requested that Annette might be permitted to remain with her till she retired to rest, and the request was somewhat reluctantly granted. Annette, however, was now with the servants, and Emily withdrew alone. With light and hasty steps she passed through the long galleries, while the feeble glimmer of the lamp she carried only showed the gloom around her, and the passing air threatened to extinguish it. 
the lonely silence that reigned in this part of the castle awed her. Now and then, indeed, she heard a faint peal of laughter rise from a remote part of the edifice, where the servants were assembled, but it was soon lost, and a kind of breathless stillness remained. As she passed the suite of rooms which she had visited in the morning, her eyes glanced fearfully on the door, and she almost fancied she heard murmuring sounds within, but she paused not a moment to inquire. Having reached her own apartment, where no blazing wood on the hearth dissipated the gloom, she sat down with a book to enliven her intention till Annette should come, and a fire could be kindled. She continued to read till her light was nearly expired, but Annette did not appear, and the solitude and obscurity of her chamber again affected her spirits, the more because of its nearness to the scene of horror that she had witnessed in the morning. Gloomy and fantastic images came to her mind. She looked fearfully toward the door of the staircase, and then, examining whether it was still fastened, found that it was so. Unable to conquer the uneasiness she felt at the prospect of sleeping again in this remote and insecure apartment, which some person seemed to have entered during the preceding night, her impatience to see Annette, whom she had bidden to inquire concerning this circumstance, became extremely painful. She wished also to question her as to the object which had excited so much horror in her own mind, and which Annette on the preceding evening had appeared to be in part acquainted with, though her words were very remote from the truth, and it appeared plainly to Emily that the girl was purposely misled by a false report. Above all, she was surprised that the door of the chamber which contained it should be left unguarded. Such an instance of negligence almost surpassed belief. But her light was now expiring. The faint flashes it threw upon the walls called up all the terrors of fancy, and she rose to find her way to the habitable part of the castle before it was quite extinguished. As she opened the chamber door, she heard it remote voices, and, soon after, saw a light issue upon the farther end of the corridor, which Annette and another servant approached. "'I'm glad you are come,' said Emily. "'What has detained you so long? Pray, light me a fire immediately.' "'My lady wanted me, mademoiselle,' replied Annette in some confusion. "'I will go and get the wood.' "'No,' said Katerina. "'That is my business.' and left the room instantly, while Annette would have followed, but, being called back, she began to talk very loud and laughed, and seemed afraid to trust a pause of silence. Katarina soon returned with the wood, and then, when the cheerful blaze once more animated the room, and this servant had withdrawn, Emily asked Annette whether she had made the inquiry she bade her. Yes, mademoiselle, said Annette but not a soul knows anything about the matter. And old Carlo, I watched him well, for they say he knows strange things. Old Carlo looked so as I don't know how to tell, and he asked me again and again if I was sure the door was ever unfastened. Lord, says I, am I sure I am alive? And as for me, ma'am, I am astounded, as one may say, and would no more sleep in this chamber than I would on the great cannon at the end of the east rampart. "'And what objection have you to that cannon, more than to any of the rest?' said Emily, smiling. "'The best would be rather a hard bed.' "'Yes, mademoiselle, 
any of them would be hard enough for that matter, but they do say that something has been seen in the dead of night, standing beside the great cannon as if to guard it. Well, my good Annette, the people who tell such stories are happy in having you for an auditor, for I perceive you believe them all. Dear Mademoiselle, I will show you the very cannon. You can see it from these windows. Well, said Emily, but that does not prove that an apparition guards it. What? Not if I show you the very cannon? Dear ma'am, you will believe nothing. Nothing, perhaps, upon this subject, but what I see, said Emily. Well, ma'am, you shall see it, if you will only step this way to the casement. Emily could not forbear in laughing, and Annette looked surprised. Perceiving her extreme aptitude to credit the marvellous, Emily forbore to mention the subject she had intended, lest it should overcome her with idle terrors, and she began to speak on a lively topic, the regattas of Venice. Ay, ma'amselle, those rowing matches, said Annette, and the fine moonlit nights are all that are worth seeing in Venice. To be sure, the moon is brighter than any I ever saw, and then to hear such sweet music too, as Ludovico has often and often sung under the lattice by the west portico. Mademoiselle, it was Ludovico that told me about the picture which you wanted so to look at last night, and what picture? said Emily, wishing Annette to explain herself. Oh, that terrible picture with the black veil over it! You never saw it then, said Emily? Who, I? No, Mademoiselle, I never did. But this morning, continued Annette, lowering her voice and looking round the room, this morning, as it was broad daylight, do you know, ma'am, I took a strange fancy to see it. And as I heard such odd hints about it, and I got so far as the door, and should have opened it, if it had not been locked. Emily, endeavouring to conceal the emotion this circumstance occasioned, inquired at what hour she went to the chamber, and found that it was soon after herself had been there. She also asked further questions, and the answers convinced her that Annette, and probably her informer, were ignorant of the terrible truth, though in Annette's account something very like the truth, now and then mingled with the falsehood. Emily now began to fear that her visit to the chamber had been observed, since the door had been closed so immediately after her departure, and dreaded lest this should draw upon her the vengeance of Montoni. Her anxiety also was excited to know whence, and for what purpose, the delusive report which had been imposed upon Annette had originated, since Montoni could only have wished for silence and secrecy. But she felt that the subject was too terrible for this lonely hour, and she compelled herself to leave it, to converse with Annette, whose chat, simple as it was, she preferred to the stillness of total solitude. Thus they sat till near midnight but not without many hints from Annette that she wished to go. The embers were now nearly burnt out, and Emily heard, at a distance, the thundering sound of the hall doors as they were shut for the night. She, therefore, prepared for rest, but was still unwilling that Annette should leave her. At this instant, the great bell of the portal sounded. They listened in fearful expectation when, after a long pause of silence, it sounded again. Soon after, they heard the noise of carriage wheels in the courtyard. Emily sunk almost lifeless in her chair. It is the Count, said she. What, at this time of night, ma'am, said Annette? No, my dear lady, 
But for that matter, it is a strange time of night for anybody to come. Nay, prithee, good Annette, stay not talking, said Emily in a voice of agony. Go, prithee, go and see who it is. Annette left the room and carried with her the light, leaving Emily in darkness, which a few moments before would have terrified her in this room, but was now scarcely observed by her. She listened and waited in breathless expectation, and heard distant noises, but Annette did not return. Her patience at length exhausted, she tried to find her way to the corridor, but it was long before she could touch the door of the chamber, and when she opened it, the total darkness made her fear to proceed. Voices were now heard, and Emily even thought she distinguished those of Count Morano and Montoni. Soon after, she heard steps approaching, and then a ray of light streamed through the darkness, and Annette appeared, whom Emily went to meet. "'Yes, mademoiselle,' said she. "'You are right. It is the Count, sure enough.' "'It is he,' exclaimed Emily, lifting her eyes towards heaven and supporting herself by Annette's arm. "'Good Lord, my dear lady, don't be in such a fluster and look so pale. We shall soon hear more.' "'We shall indeed,' said Emily, moving as fast as she was able toward her apartment. "'I am not well. Give me air.' Annette opened a casement and brought water. The faintness soon left Emily, but she desired Annette would not go till she heard from Montoni. "'Dear mademoiselle, he surely will not disturb you at this time of night. Why, he must think you are asleep.' "'Stay with me till I am so, then,' said Emily, who felt temporary relief from this suggestion, which appeared probable enough, though her fears had prevented its occurring to her. Annette, with secret reluctance, consented to stay, and Emily was now composed enough to ask her some questions, among others, whether she had seen the Count. "'Yes, ma'am. I saw him alight, for I went from hence to the grate in the north turret that overlooks the inner courtyard, you know. There I saw the Count's carriage and the Count in it, waiting at the great door, for the porter was just gone to bed, with several men on horseback all by the light of the torches they carried.' Emily was compelled to smile. When the door was opened, the Count said something that I could not make out, and then got out, and another gentleman with him. I thought, to be sure, the Signor was gone to bed, and I hastened away to my lady's dressing-room to see what I could hear. But in the way I met Ludovico, and he told me that the Signor was up, counselling with his master and the other Signors, in the room at the end of the North Gallery. And Ludovico held up his finger, laid it on his lips as much to say, there's more going on than you think of, Annette, but you must hold your tongue. And so I did hold my tongue, mademoiselle, and came away to tell you directly. Emily inquired who the cavalier was that accompanied the Count, and how Montoni received them, but Annette could not inform her. Ludovico, she added, had just been to call Signor Montoni's valet, that he might tell him they had arrived when I met him. Emily sat musing for some time, and then her anxiety was so much increased that she desired Annette would go to the servants' hall, where it was possible she might hear something of the Count's intention respecting his stay at the castle. "'Yes, ma'am,' said Annette with readiness. "'But how am I to find the way, if I leave the lamp with you?' Emily said she would light her, and they immediately quitted the chamber. When they had reached the top of the great staircase, Emily recollected that she might be seen by the Count, 
and, to avoid the great hall, Annette conducted her through some private passages to a back staircase, which led directly to that of the servants. As she returned towards her chamber, Emily began to fear that she might again lose herself in the intricacies of the castle, and again be shocked by some mysterious spectacle, and though she was already perplexed by the numerous turnings, she feared to open one of the many doors that offered. While she stepped thoughtfully along, she fancied that she heard a low moaning at no great distance, and having paused a moment, she heard it again distinctly. Several doors appeared on the right hand of the passage. She advanced and listened. When she came to the second, she heard a voice, apparently in complaint, within, to which she continued to listen, afraid to open the door and unwilling to leave it. Convulsive sobs followed, and then the piercing accents of an agonizing spirit burst forth. Emily stood appalled and looked through the gloom that surrounded her in fearful expectation. The lamentations continued. Pity now began to subdue terror. It was possible she might administer comfort to the sufferer, at least, by expressing sympathy, and she laid her hand on the door. While she hesitated, she thought she knew this voice, disguised as it was by tones of grief. Having, therefore, set down the lamp in the passage, she gently opened the door, within which all was dark except that from an inner apartment a partial light appeared, and she stepped softly on. Before she reached it, the appearance of Madame Montoni, leaning on her dresser-table, weeping, and with a handkerchief held to her eyes, struck her, and she paused. Some person was seated in a chair by the fire, but who it was she could not distinguish. He spoke now and then in a low voice that did not allow Emily to hear what was uttered, but she thought that Madame Montoni at those times wept the more, who was too much occupied by her own distress to observe Emily, while the latter, though anxious to know what occasioned this, and who was the person admitted at so late an hour to her aunt's dressing-room, forbear to add to her sufferings by surprising her, or to take advantage of her situation by listening to a private discourse. She, therefore, stepped softly back, and after some further difficulty found the way to her own chamber, where nearer interests, at length, excluded the surprise and concern she felt respecting Madame Montoni. Annette, however, returned without satisfactory intelligence, for the servants among whom she had been, were either entirely ignorant, or affected to be so, concerning the Count's intended stay at the castle. They could talk only of the steep and broken road they had just passed, and of the numerous dangers they had escaped, and express wonder how their lord could choose to encounter all these in the darkness of night, for they scarcely allowed that the torches had served for any other purpose but that of showing the dreariness of the mountains. Annette, finding she could gain no more information, left them, making noisy petitions for more wood on the fire and more supper on the table. And now, Mademoiselle, added she, I am so sleepy. I am sure, if you was so sleepy, you would not desire me to sit up with you. Emily, indeed, began to think it was cruel to wish it. She had also waited so long without receiving a summons from Montoni, that it appeared he did not mean to disturb her at this late hour, and she determined to dismiss Annette. But, 
when she again looked round her gloomy chamber and recollected certain circumstances fear seized her spirits and she hesitated and yet it were cruel of me to ask you to stay till i am asleep in it said she for i fear it will be very long before i forget myself in sleep i dare say it will be very long mademoiselle said annette but before you go rejoined emily let me ask you had Signor Mantoni left Count Morano when you quitted the hall? Oh, no, ma'am. They were alone together. Have you been in my aunt's dressing room since you left me? No, mademoiselle. I called at the door as I passed, but it was fastened, so I thought my lady was gone to bed. Who, then, was with your lady just now? said Emily, forgetting in surprise her usual prudence. Nobody, I believe, madame replied Annette. Nobody has been with her, I believe, since you left. Emily took no further notice of the subject, and after some struggle with imaginary fears, her good nature prevailed over them so far that she dismissed Annette for the night. She then sat, musing upon her own circumstances and those of Madame Montoni, till her eye rested on the miniature picture which she had found after her father's death among the papers he had enjoined her to destroy. It was open upon the table before her, among some loose drawings, having with them been taken out of a little box by Emily some hours before. The sight of it called up many interesting reflections, but the melancholy sweetness of the countenance soothed the emotions which these had occasioned. It was the same style of countenance as that of her late father, and, while she gazed on it with fondness on this account, she even fancied a resemblance in the features. But this tranquillity was suddenly interrupted when she recollected the words in the manuscript that had been found with the picture, and which had formerly occasioned her so much doubt and horror. At length she roused herself from the deep reverie into which this remembrance had thrown her, but when she rose to undress the silence and solitude to which she was left at this midnight hour, for not even a distant sound was now heard, conspired with the impression the subject she had been considering had given to her mind to appall her. Annette's hints, too, concerning this chamber, simple as they were, had not failed to affect her, since they followed a circumstance of peculiar horror which she herself had witnessed, and since the scene of this was a chamber nearly adjoining her own. The door of the staircase was, perhaps, a subject of more reasonable alarm, and she now began to apprehend, such was the aptitude of her fears, that this staircase had some private communication with the apartment, which she shuddered even to remember. Determined not to undress, she lay down to sleep in her clothes, with her late father's dog, the faithful Manchon, at the foot of the bed, whom she considered as a kind of guard. Thus circumstanced, she tried to banish reflection, but her busy fancy would still hover over the subjects of her interest, and she heard the clock of the castle strike two before she closed her eyes. From the disturbed slumber into which she then sunk, she was soon awakened by a noise which seemed to arise within her chamber, but the silence that prevailed as she fearfully listened inclined her to believe that she had been alarmed by such sounds as sometimes occur in dreams, and she laid her head again upon the pillow. 
A return of the noise again disturbed her. It seemed to come from that part of the room which communicated with the private staircase, and she instantly remembered the odd circumstance of the door having been fastened during the preceding night by some unknown hand. Her late alarming suspicion concerning its communication also occurred to her. Her heart became faint with terror. Half raising herself from the bed, and gently drawing aside the curtain, she looked towards the door of the staircase, but the lamp that burnt on the hearth spread so feeble a light through the apartment that the remote parts of it were lost in shadow. The noise, however, which she was convinced came from the door, continued. It seemed like that made by the undrawing of rusty bolts, and often ceased, and was then renewed more gently, as if the hand that occasioned it was restrained by a fear of discovery. While Emily kept her eyes fixed on the spot, she saw the door move, and then slowly open, and perceived something enter the room, but the extreme duskiness prevented her distinguishing what it was. Almost fainting with terror, she had yet sufficient command over herself to contain the shriek that was escaping from her lips, and letting the curtain drop from her hand, continued to observe in silence the motions of the mysterious form she saw. It seemed to glide along the remote obscurity of the apartment, then paused, and, as it approached the hearth, she perceived in the stronger light what appeared to be a human figure. Certain remembrances now struck upon her heart, and almost subdued the feeble remains of her spirits. She continued, however, to watch the figure, which remained for some time motionless, but then, advancing slowly towards the bed, stood silently at the feet where the curtains, being a little open, allowed her to see it. Terror, however, had now deprived her of the power of discrimination, as well as that of utterance. Having continued there a moment, the form retreated towards the hearth. When it took the lamp, held it up, surveyed the chamber for a few moments, and then again advanced towards the bed. The light at that instant awakened the dog that had slept at Emily's feet. He barked loudly, and jumping to the floor, flew at the stranger, who struck the animal smartly with a sheathed sword, and springing towards the bed, Emily discovered Count Morano. She gazed at him a moment in speechless affright, while he, throwing himself on his knee at the bedside, besought her to fear nothing, and having thrown down his sword, would have taken her hand when the facilities that terror had suspended suddenly returned, and she sprung from the bed in the dress, which surely a kind of prophetic apprehension had prevented her on this night from throwing aside. Morano rose, followed her to the door through which he had entered, and caught her hand as she reached the top of the staircase. But not before she had discovered, by the gleam of a lamp, another man halfway down the stairs. She now screamed in despair, and believing herself given up by Montoni, saw indeed no possibility of escape. The Count, who still held her hand, led her back into the chamber. "'Why all this terror?' said he, in a tremulous voice. Hear me, Emily. I come not to alarm you. No, by heaven, I love you too well, too well for my own peace. Emily looked at him for a moment in fearful doubt. Then leave me, sir, said she. Leave me instantly. Hear me, Emily, resumed Morano. Hear me. I love, 
and am in despair, yes, in despair. How can I gaze upon you and know that it is, perhaps, for the last time, without suffering all the frenzy of despair? But it shall not be so. You shall be mine, in spite of Montoni and all his villainy. End of Volume 2, Chapter 6, Part 2 of 3